When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Okay, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. In the best traditions of space flight, slightly delayed, but hopefully worth the wait. It's the April edition of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. We've come for the day out to the Science Museum in London and we're beside the Space Gallery, surrounded by space history and hardware, including right in front of us, not a replica, the one, the only Apollo 10. And we'll be celebrating Apollo 10 a little later on, as well as taking a walk on Mars. With us, the Science Museum's space curator, Doug Millard. And Doug, what's great about the collection you have here, I think, unlike other museums and big national museums, you dispel the myth that Britain hasn't done space because there's an awful lot of British space stuff here and big, proper space missions. That's correct. We have a real British space rocket above our heads in the space gallery, Black Arrow. Now, it should have gone into space. The project was cancelled, but its predecessor launched the Prospero satellite. We have the Huygens descent probe, which went to Titan, not the real one, that's still on Titan. But uh, a lot of UK engineering and science went into that. And then we have a a very fine model of Ariel 1. Now, Ariel 1 was the world's first international satellite, and that was with a UK payload, largely, or experiments and uh, instruments, with an American satellite body. So that was way back in 1962. So we've been around the business for quite a long time. And as you mentioned, one particular bittersweet British claim to fame in space is that Britain is the only nation to launch a satellite and then abandon that capability. It's Farnborough again, Britain's aerospace industry on view to the world. The Great Exhibition Hall draws vast crowds. Black Knight has had 17 successful launchings. It is a ballistics research vehicle powered by the Gamma Motor. It will be developed as a three-stage rocket to launch satellites in different orbits. And it did. Black Knight's successor, Black Arrow, successfully launched a satellite in 1971, and then the programme was cancelled. That clip was from a central office of information film of a late 60s Farnborough air show. And Doug, you mentioned you got a Black Arrow here. Actually, as launchers go, and particularly as this was uh, developed in the 60s, flew in the early 70s, it's pretty small, almost comparable to modern small launchers. So was it ahead of its time? In many ways, it was ahead of its time. In fact, there may be one or two people, as we speak, thinking about what the UK might want to do in the future as regards small satellite launch vehicles. The UK government has been looking at the potential for launching satellites uh, in the future, small satellites, so who knows, it might be back to the future. Remind us again, because we know, but we have a lot of international listeners to the podcast, why the British space programme was cancelled. 
Well, the programme was, wasn't so much cancelled as, as focused. And <laughs> the satellite sector was uh, developed quite extensively. And this was also part of the UK's contribution to the European Space Agency. And so uh, communication satellites in particular have been developed for many years. But we're also good at space science. And uh, it's the launch vehicles that had to stop because there just wasn't enough money at the time to justify the expenditure. But who knows, maybe we will be going back to that before long. And am I right in thinking they essentially, the government of the time, and this is the early 70s, there was literally no money, less money than the, there is now, or certainly the economy was almost in a worse state than it is now. The decision was made between launcher or Concorde, essentially, by the government. As is always the case with these decisions, there's all sorts of political considerations. One of the fundamental problems with Black Arrow was that the Black Arrow vehicles could be produced by the then British Hovercraft Corporation, but there weren't enough satellites for them to be justified. So if there had been more satellites made available, then perhaps the decision to cancel wouldn't have been taken. So you essentially had a rocket with nothing to launch. That was one of the main reasons it was cancelled. Well, Britain's now back in the launcher business. There's a programme to develop a spaceport and build a new type of launcher, the Skylon spaceplane, with its air-breathing Sabre engine. Now, Skylon's being developed by Reaction Engines Limited and has been backed by £60 million from the UK government. The engineer behind it is Alan Bond, and I caught up with him between lectures at the recent Appleton Space Conference in Oxfordshire. Our vision basically is that uh, space flight's got to have cheap, uh, reliable, reusable transportation. The way that we do things at the moment, which is a legacy from sort of Cold War technology, is to uh, get the launch vehicle at the launch site, put it together as a kit of parts, incredibly labour-intensive. It finishes up costing about as much as a reasonable-sized airliner, and we throw it all away in one mission. Space cannot expand and deliver all of the uh, great stuff that the human race needs unless we get it cheap and reusable and very, very accessible. Well, let's talk about your technology in a second, but this would be a genuine game-changer, wouldn't it? We want an aeroplane, something that will take off, get into space, do a job. As soon as it's done that job, it will be back on the ground, turned around as quick as possible and do another job. The horizon that we've set ourselves at the moment is 200 missions. If we can do, do that and if we can uh, make these vehicles available all around the world, then access to space becomes boring that's that's what we're really trying to do the access bit and then we can get on and do all the exciting stuff of going back to the moon going out to mars getting out there in the universe the core of this really is an is an engine i suppose the space equivalent of a jet engine yeah the rocket engines are phenomenal i I, all, all my life i've been absolutely in love with rocket engines but there's one ugly fact and that is they cannot quite hack uh driving a single stage vehicle into orbit economically you can just about make it of course ordinary aircraft use the atmosphere they don't have to carry all their propellant with them but the rub is you can't get an ordinary jet engine above about 2.7 times the speed of sound without uh, investing a lot in the technology a long time ago we found that uh, because you've got liquid hydrogen on board if you're clever enough you can actually use the liquid hydrogen to cool the air coming into the engine and that enables you to get up to between five and six times the speed of sound 
that's the magic. If you can achieve that, then a combination of a jet engine and a rocket engine in an integrated propulsion system will enable you to go all the way from the ground into orbit. You can then do the job, come back as a glider, and then do it all again. And that's very different to the sorts of things that Virgin Galactic are trying to do, or X-Core, which is a suborbital flight. You're looking to go from the ground to orbit, but with this particular type of engine. Yeah, the the suborbital space tourism people, uh, obviously for entertainment, are looking at getting into space, but only just now. Uh, These vehicles are up there for a few moments. They're then back into the atmosphere and land. In order to get into orbit, you've got to get 25 times as much energy per kilogram into the vehicle. So that's an enormous challenge. And the engines that we've currently got, quite frankly, are just not up to that. The engines that we're now working on can do that. At least that's what the analysis says. We've got a massive experimental program going on. Over the next four years, we're hoping to get to the point where we've got the first of those engines on tests, on demonstration, and start to develop the technology so that... I don't know, every time I make a prediction it's wrong, but let's say within the next 12 to 15 years we should be able to see vehicles now starting to do precisely what I've described. And technologically, what is different about your engine? What's the, the clever thing about it? It's simply the ability to integrate a air-breathing engine or a rocket engine into a single propulsion unit. So this vehicle, you start the engines at zero speed, it can accelerate the vehicle down the runway, accelerate it up to five times the speed of sound at 26 kilometres, then transition into a rocket and complete the acceleration to about 28 times the speed of sound, if that means anything in space, in orbit. So it's, it's that integration and having an engine which can take you all the way through. Scramjets, ramjets, rockets are not able to do that. And what is the technical challenge of achieving that? I mean, you, you have, I mean, people are taking you seriously. You've got money from the government, you've got other investors, but it's not going to be easy, is it? It's not easy. The real technical challenge was the heat exchangers. You've got to cool the air coming into the engine. Uh, that heat exchange is running at about 400 megawatts. You've got approximately one and a quarter tonnes of hardware to do that in. In a nuclear power station, that would weigh 200 tonnes. So that's been the technical challenge we've solved that from now on that's that's the sort of one percent one percent inspiration we've now got the 99 percent perspiration to to get all of the other technologies and everything commensurate with that have you got the the backing to go beyond the 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 test phase which is what you've got the money for at the moment i mean how much do you need to make this thing fly to actually build a spacecraft that can do what you what you describe the full program is uh, reassuringly expensive that's uh, sort of 12 billion pounds in total but the most important and crucial bit which is to demonstrate the engine dare i say it is a mere sort of 360 million or that sort of order the government has contributed 60 million to that program we have other sources and contributors which are bringing us up uh, to a substantial part of that but uh, we've still got quite a lot of fundraising to do over the coming four to five years now i believe that the program is developing a life of its own Uh, we're bringing in other industries large established aerospace companies to work alongside us there's interest both in europe and in other parts of the world in being part of this program so i'm pretty optimistic that we will get that uh, engine on test once we get that far the rest of it dare i say because i'm an engineer is straightforward development work founder and chief engineer at reaction engines limited alan bond 
Now you can probably tell that we're no longer in the main exhibiting room of the Science Museum by Apollo 10, but we're in a, a quieter, more refined office here now. And um, Skylon, we last interviewed Alan Bond for the podcast probably about three years ago now, and a lot has happened since then. A lot of testing's gone on. It seems now to have a lot more momentum behind it. Doug, do you think it's actually going to happen this time? I think it will happen one day. I think if there was a fundamental problem, they'd have uh, found it by now and things would have come to a grinding halt. But uh, Alan's always made very clear that the, the big challenge is sorting out this thermodynamic exchange, this immensely demanding regime whereby air can be squeezed and cooled in a relatively small bit of kit. Now, that's been demonstrated and uh, the space sector has authenticated this demonstration. So we're now getting, as Alan says, very close to the point where actual demonstration vehicles, engines can actually be developed. As he says, the perspiration is still to come, but the inspiration does seem to have um, happened. Is that why you've decided to put an exhibit about Skylon in the actual Science Museum here? Because I I noticed it when I was having a a little look round, because I recognise that beautifully sleek, almost 1950s retro-style rocket, because I have a model of it on my desk. (laughs) As Alan makes clear, it's very expensive to, to, to launch spacecraft and satellites into orbit with uh, with rockets with vehicles that we throw away after each each mission so the holy grail has always been and for, for many decades to actually have a rocket or some sort of launch vehicle that can be reused and there have been many different designs over many many years but skylon has always stood out as something which is in a way quite simple it's a simple concept but actually engineering it has been the challenge. So um, Skylon is there as part of a display which looks ahead to the future when perhaps a new space age will begin. The one that we are still in started in 1957 with Sputnik, that built on the work that went on particularly after the Second World War. But uh, it's still very difficult to explore space, so maybe Alan's Skylon will be part of the second space age, where we really start to whiz around the solar system. And it is a second space age. I mean, we had the X-planes in the 60s, and now we've got the likes of Skylon. You've got, Richard mentioned in his interview, you know, you've got Virgin Galactic, you've got X-Core, and there are all sorts of projects coming up on, on Kickstarter. Do you feel that they've got an advantage to what's gone before? Having worked in the museum for a few years, there's, um, there's clear that there's a generational change. So you have a whole new generation becoming interested in space and bringing together all the 21st century expertise, which uh, I, I struggle with, to be honest. But these youngsters, they know exactly what to do. Space is very appealing again. We went through a period when it was not quite so popular but particularly in the last 10 years or so. And I would mention one one name, actually, who contributed greatly to this, and that was Colin Pillinger. Yes. Uh, The Beagle mission really energised a lot of the UK space public. And you've got a Beagle too. And we we have a a replica of the Beagle too. And um, a lot has happened since then. We now know that... You know, in order to survive as a, as, a, as a viable economy, we need to invest in high-value technology and science. We do need people to be doing this sort of work. Well, a lot so, of the people who are on Beagle 2 have, have been involved in Rosetta, so it, it, it does have this massive 
sort of uh, legacy if you work on, on something. And it was great to see Beagle 2 in there, particularly as it was recently discovered intact on Mars. And then to see the shape of it with its panels open downstairs and then recall those pictures that were only released a few months ago showing those same little hexagonal open solar panels, all but the crucial one. Yes, I mean, it's, uh, it's a tragedy that uh, Colin wasn't able to witness its discovery. But I don't know, maybe he's, uh, he's watching from somewhere. But a uh, very important mission, and of course it's just a beginning of something that's going to go on. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can reach us on Facebook and Twitter, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on this and our other Space Boffins podcast. Well, let's head to a desolate place with no atmosphere now. Stevenage, 30 miles north of London. Here in a warehouse just behind the station, engineers at Airbus Defence and Space have recreated another bleak and hostile environment, the surface of Mars. Now, I was at the launch of the new Mars Yard when it opened a year ago, and this time now Richard's been back to meet the team developing and testing the rover for the European Space Agency's 2018 mission to the Red Planet. Welcome to Mars. It's desolate, red, sandy, rocky surface stretching out to the horizon. It is, though, surprisingly warm and there's a gentle breeze. It is, of course, Mars in Stevenage, the Mars Yard. And I'm with ExoMars rover project manager Van Odedra. Van, just tell me about this Mars Yard here. It is quite extensive. It's not what you imagine a yard to be it's really a warehouse full of sand this uh, yard was specially commissioned in order for us to be able to have a simulation of the martian surface as we best understand it with all the kind of features that that the uh, the rover will encounter so that we can use our development models here in the breadboards to put them through their paces in order to make sure that the design that we are working on and and in particular the locomotion system and control algorithms are, are fit for purpose. It consists of something of the order of 30 metres by 13 metres and some 300 uh, tonnes of sand. We're standing on the sand now, so this goes down quite a way, does it? 50 centimetres or so. But it's, as you know, it's sculptured in order to allow us to be able to test it on gradients and, and of course, representative uh, set of rocks and features which you will have to negotiate either over it or, or around it. And that's where the clever uh, set of algorithms come in for it to be able to think it for itself. Well, we'll come on to that. You talk about this breadboard, but that's... Uh, we would imagine that as, as the rover, but there are multiple rovers here. There are actually, I can see three rovers. They're all a variation on, on the same rover. The programme itself uh, has been going on for quite some time now. The latest model that you see here in front of us is what we call Brian. It's the most representative of the current design. It has all of the capabilities that we will have on the, uh, the flight rover. I must say, Brian looks pretty ugly. Uh, it's the the rover base with uh, with six wheels articulated somewhat, and then it's just a a rack, a, a computer rack standing up on on top of it, quite high around the size of a, a small fridge freezer, and a pole with a camera on the top. Yeah, I, I, yes. I mean, t- by no means should you assume that the, that the flight rover is going to look like this. The purpose of this this model here is just primarily for us to test the locomotion system, so we the wheels and the chassis and the suspension as well as the mast and the camera in terms of its representativity and geometry is, is correct. The rest, really, we, we, we're not um, um, concerned about as far as the, the requirements for this model is concerned. We have other models that we will be building in order to demonstrate, if you like, the full 
a suite of accommodating the equipment as well as the instruments that the flight rover will have. Now, Dave Peekover, you're responsible for the rovers. You're the ExoMars rover engineering manager. What does that involve? I have to lead the whole engineering team who are responsible for the design of the rover and for the implementation of the uh, verification program that we have to perform to show that the whole rover actually will achieve what it's meant to achieve. That's going to be quite a challenge, isn't it, to go from these sorts of rovers you've got at the moment, one of which looks quite like a a Mars rover but hasn't got the capabilities, and this one here that's got some of the capabilities but looks nothing like a Mars rover. That's right. We're actually already quite a way down that path. The actual rover has a carbon fibre monocoque, which is already largely designed. Oh, oh, carbon fibre what? Monocoque. What's that? We nickname it the bathtub. It basically looks like a, a rather short bathtub and that houses all the electronics of the rover and also provides the mountings for the locomotion system so the bogies and the wheels that you can see so it's it's it is actually not dissimilar to a car so really a sort of high performance car uh, f1 car something like that where you've got this uh, the carbon fiber core to it that's right it doesn't go quite as fast but it's just as advanced and one of the key things, of course, with a rover is mobility. It's the ability to move, move around on the surface. And Marie Campana, you're the ExoMars rover mobility team leader. So you've got to make it move and move to a degree autonomously. This is going to be quite an intelligent rover. Yes, the main function is actually to allow the rover to move autonomously over the Martian terrain for a full day moving to a target up to 70 metres away. 70-70? 7-0, yes. So while we have all the capability to operate with a reduced uh, autonomy, so like a remote control or something uh, similar, the main focus of the rover is actually to autonomously traverse. And therefore, this is what uh, the algorithm that the mobility team are working on aim to deliver. When you say autonomous, what have you got to build into the rover to make sure it works properly on its own, doesn't fall over a cliff or doesn't shut down, doesn't go into an area of a shadow so it powers down, all these sort of factors? Exactly. You could consider the functionality into two sets. One set is the actual locomotion. So the rover needs to be able to traverse and follow a path and be able to deal with overcoming rocks. There is a high level of slippage on the sand, and therefore this is partially uh, mobility, but also partially structure, with, for example, flexible wheels, which focus on the ability to move across the terrain. And then the other part of the functionality, which you can consider as the navigation aspect or the autonomy aspect, include actually the rover using its camera to assess its surrounding, create a 3D representation of its surrounding in order to identify safe areas and dangerous areas, as well as any hazard, such as the cliff you are mentioning, and then map a path And therefore, then, what we call move autonomously is a combination of these two functions. Know where you are, identify your environment, find a path to where you want to go, and then actually go there. And how is it going so far? This is a question I should ask for all of you, really. I mean, is it it 
on track at the moment? Are things working out? To be honest with you, I've, I joined the programme just, just uh, under two years ago and, and Dave more recently. Um, but this programme, as you might know, the history is fairly checkered in terms of stop-starts because of the financial constraints uh, and, and, and budgets. But right now, to be honest with you, we, and particularly with the support that we just uh, got from the UK Space Agency uh, all the way up to ministerial level, the team is very, very motivated and, and, and fully focused on, on, on delivering this project. The team size has grown from something like 30, 40 people a couple of years ago to about 140 full-time equivalents on the project with all sorts of disciplines and, and, and diversity on the project. So we have a bunch of very, very talented uh, group of engineers who are very motivated to deliver this program successfully and to pay back the trust that the UK Space Agency and ESA has placed on Airbus Defence and Space here in Stevenage. ESA's ExoMars rover project manager, Vanna Dedra, along with Dave Peekover, Marie Campana and Brian the Mars rover. Gotta sort out this name. You know, you've got NASA had, what, Viking, Curiosity, Spirit, Opportunity, Brian. <laughs> but I mean, it's not really it's Brian, not really, no. No, the original one was called, I should explain, the original one was called Bridget because it was breadboard, so that became BB, BB. which became Bridget Bardot. And then they had a competition internally, and Brian... Oh, I think if we have a spacecraft, a rover called Brian, I think, you know, we've arrived. It's a bit, it is a bit Monty Python, though, isn't it? It is. I have a vision of Michael Palin describing the mission. <laughs> Maybe he'll go on one of his um, missions. Now, there are actually two ExoMars missions, the first in 2016. This is quite ambitious, isn't it, for Europe? Europe's never done anything like this before. The rovers which have uh, landed on Mars have been American increasingly successful, some of them performing for years beyond their expected lifetime. But I remember when the first of these, called uh, Sojourner, or Sojourner, which was landed in the mid to late 1990s, well, it coincided with Wimbledon, but also the, the early years of the, the internet. So people were following this mission for the first time, and it had a tremendous impact And I'm picturing that uh, with the increasing interest in the UK, certainly with space exploration, this mission is going to get a tremendous amount of UK support. It's an international programme, as all of these are, and uh, it's going to be um, followed around the world. Does the museum often promote, in your space gallery, the British aspect of certain missions, even if, though, globally they might be thought of as a NASA mission or a Japanese mission? The museum never sets out to promote one sort of nationality over another. It just so happens that it's very often easier to acquire space artefacts locally, whether it be from Stevenage or um, Mullard Space Science Laboratory or Leicester or what have you. America as well. Russia has tended to be a little more challenging. It's really what is available. Now, it just so happens that, particularly in recent years and looking at planetary exploration, the UK has really started to get stuck in. So there is more opportunity. And it's nice if we can say, you know, this is something that's built down the road because most of our visitors come from the UK and it shows the youngsters in particular that, uh, well, if you want to do this, why not? You know, do your homework there you go. Are you likely to get something that's UK and Rosetta in, in with your exhibits because the Open University have built the Ptolemy instrument? Well, just recently we had a, a small display on Rosetta when Philae landed. 
I don't know whether we'll repeat that. The uh, part of the museum where we put these news exhibitions on, it has to be a novel story. Now, if something really new and surprising comes out of the Rosetta mission... It comes out of the cupboards. It, 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 it might, <laughs> yes. uh, might be uh, covered again. I guess we're also looking to what else is in the pipeline over the next few months because there's, there's some very interesting missions coming to fruition. Pluto in particular? Pluto. Uh, we don't really know what Pluto looks like. So uh, just uh, a day or so ago, we got a tantalising sort of rusty-coloured tennis ball uh, appearing in the imagery. New Horizons is getting closer and closer to Pluto. What might we find? We are discovering a planet for the first... Sorry, a dwarf planet for the first time. Call it a planet. A planet. <laughs> yeah, I think we have to. We have to just oh, call please, it a let's, planet. Let's not, let's not have this argument now. <laughs> yeah. Now, we can't visit the Science Museum without a mention of one of the most significant space exhibits here. Only a few metres away from a V2 rocket, which made it all possible, the Apollo 10 command module, which launched to the moon on May the 18th, 1969, in a dress rehearsal for the first landing just two months later. Here then, in two minutes, is the entire Apollo 10 mission featuring Tom Stafford, pilot John Young and Gene Cernan in command module Charlie Brown and lunar lander Snoopy. We have ignition sequence start. Engines on five, four, three, two. All engines running. Launch commit, liftoff. We have liftoff 49 minutes past the hour. Tom. Roger. We're burning. Roger, Brian. We're on the way. Uh, Roger, we confirm. That's would be 27,500 feet per second. Trico! Roger, Trico. This is just uh, the, so that you guys uh, don't uh, get too excited about the TV and forget what your job is down there. We're ready for what we're about to receive. As the uh, view ten, we have our student geologists here uh, overlooking the surface, and they'll report a minute, minute. Roger, standing by. Over. Okay, we're just passing from the highlands over in, in, into the Murray area, and you can pass on to Jack. We got a couple of real pretty little volcanoes. There's no doubt about them, and we got a couple of good high resolution photos. Okay, we're burning, John. We're burning. No Houston, we copy. Engine gimbal light, forget about it, babe. Got an engine gimbal light, but everything's good. Hello, Houston, this is Snoop. It looks like this landing radar is doing real good. Uh, Roger, Snoop, uh, we roger that, over. Hello, Houston, Apollo 10. Hello, Apollo 10, this is Houston. How'd the burn go? Uh, roger, Houston, we are returning to the Earth, over. Glad to have you on the way back home, 10. We had splashed down at 192 hours, 3 minutes, 25 seconds approximately. The spacecraft is in stable one, that is apex up. Apollo 10 on its mission to the moon in May 1969. And even Snoopy and Charlie Brown, still better names than Brian. Right, well, as you can probably hear, we've come back into the main part of the Science Museum and we're beside the sort of wonderfully orange-rusted Apollo 10 capsule. It's beautiful to actually see. And it, it reminds me, funnily enough, of a similar size of the Orion space capsule because I was in at Cape Canaveral 
before Christmas for the launch. I love the way I can casually bring that in, you know, as if that's a regular occurrence. But having said that, it's still hard to believe that there were three people inside a, a, a space that is not that much bigger than a VW Beetle, to be honest. Yeah, it's remarkable. And, uh, the, you know, the technology is that we're standing next to here, getting on for 50 years old. Although we remember or read about President Kennedy saying we're going to go to the moon before the end of the decade is out, way back in 61, Apollo was already underway. It had been going for about 18 months. So the technologies used were really, by today's standards, ancient. But they worked, so maybe there's an object lesson there. Maybe we make things too complicated these days. And sitting in this capsule was the commander, Tom Stafford, the command module pilot, John Young, and the lunar module pilot, Gene Cernan, who, as it happens, the first and only time I've met him was actually here, probably about 10 years ago now, beside this very capsule. Now, it was a, a dress rehearsal, in effect, for Apollo 11. How did you manage to get this, first of all? <laughs> Well, although it's been on display in the museum since 1976, unfortunately we don't own it. It belongs to the Smithsonian Institution, the National Air and Space Museum in Washington. And uh, they very kindly lend it to us, and we have to renew the loan every five years together with other space objects that we borrow from them. But it's the only Apollo spacecraft outside the US, so we're very privileged and very proud that we're able to display it for our many millions of visitors each year to come and see it. It's somewhat been overshadowed because it was a dress rehearsal the glory was given to Apollo 11 but what Apollo 11 did wouldn't have been possible without this one. Apollo 10 was the only time that all the Apollo spacecraft and systems and techniques were rehearsed at the moon. They did everything bar landing. The lunar module went down to about 11 kilometres altitude. It was looking at a site that it would have landed on had it that been its mission taking lots of photographs testing the radar testing the navigation computers making sure the lunar module and the command module could could redock and bring the guys safely back home so uh, and by and large it all went very well what is remarkable is just the schedule of this i mean you mentioned 1961 so kennedy said right we're going to start doing this this was in May 69. The actual landing on the moon was only a couple of months later in July 69. Only one rehearsal. And you compare that with the way the Space Launch System and Orion, all the, the current missions, how spread out that all is and how many checks and balances and unmanned missions they're doing. This was really tight. Absolutely, yes. I mean, the, for those who can remember these times, uh, it was a thrill a minute stuff. There was something going on certainly every month, sometimes almost every week. Television was locked in. Uh, we had the uh, familiar personalities on television presenting what was happening live from, from the Cape. So it's a tremendously exciting time. And certainly when we came to the final Apollo mission in 73, the landing uh, on the moon, Apollo 17, there was a palpable sadness that it was all over. And I'm afraid that was true. It's, uh, it was all over, and it doesn't look like we're going to be repeating anything like that for quite some time. You say that, but you know, I mentioned Orion earlier, and the comparisons between Orion and Apollo are fairly strong, not least in terms of shape, how it's being delivered, parachutes. Aren't we back to Apollo there? We are back to where we left off, really, so... The shuttle was an amazing machine, the most, I believe, sophisticated vehicle ever built. But uh, that's finished, and now we are planning 
both uh, a new type of spacecraft, the Orion, new types of rocket that will get us both into Earth orbit, but also into deep space, back, back to the moon one day, and in theory, on, on perhaps to an asteroid or to Mars. It's the perhapses, isn't it, is the, is the issue. This was a definite goal. We're going to get to the moon, they got to the moon. Yeah, and that's one of the big questions is whether in the absence of a clear political commitment that this will be done, we will actually go on to Mars, certainly in our lifetimes. Mars is very difficult anyway, but it would be nice to think that the, the US is going back into deep space exploration. I miss it. And what will you get next for the Science Museum, for the Space Gallery? Well, very often it's a question of what we can fit in the Space Gallery. But um, if certain spacecraft became available, maybe we'd think about enlarging the Science Museum to fit them in. I don't know. Cosmonaut exhibition coming up later this year, which you've obviously curated. Well, we're, we're very excited. We hope to have an extremely uh, important exhibition of Russian space exploration. It'll be something that uh, certainly the UK and many other countries has never seen before. Oh, I can't wait. That sounds fantastic. I think we'll be back then for that, definitely. Our thanks to Doug Millard and to the Science Museum in London today for hosting us. The Space Boffins podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Naked Scientists and is supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. And next month we'll catch up with Rosetta as Europe's comet mission heads towards the sun. I'm about to embark on a trip across Europe to meet the key scientists and engineers. Do get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. And until next time, from the Science Museum here in London, thanks for listening.